Well, I want to welcome all of you, all our new lifers and guests. For all you moms, happy Mother's Day. I hope you all enjoyed that uh, fun video the dads helped with that one of our leaders, Jerry Harkle Road, put a ton of time in and helping create. And uh, New Life Moms, you hopefully found a special surprise on your porch this morning. A couple ladies in our community, Angie Jones and Alyssa Whalen, helped put together something special. I had an amazing team of men that were just quick to volunteer to hit the road early this morning to do some drop and dash deliveries because we love you. In a time when we're just so isolated and trapped in our homes, we just wanted to offer a personal touch as a church, so I hope that you like that. Uh, if you're a mom and you didn't get anything on your porch this morning, well, that means that we didn't know you're connected to us. And so that means you should click in the comments uh, to take, uh, click the link in the comments to take a small step in connecting to New Life to our family page, because ultimately, life is complicated. We just want to help, and we want to be there for you. Uh, thank you for joining us online. If this is your first time, my name's Chad. I'm the pastor of New Life, and this is the perfect day for you to be joining us. And if you saw today's message title, I Love Jesus, But I Cuss a Little, you probably guessed that today isn't really a Mother's Day talk, though I've been enough around moms to know that if anything can make a mom cuss, it's husbands and children, right? So today does apply to moms. It applies to all of you, because today, in my brief time with you, I want to talk about something so important as it pertains to you and our church and why it matters to each of you, whether you've been to it with us from the beginning or this is your first time, because there's an important reason we are who we are as a church and why we began in the first place. And to set us up for where we're headed, I want to share a little story. It's kind of embarrassing to me, but a few months ago, I was just finishing up a nice big plastic cup filled with carrot, broccoli, and power greens and vanilla protein, my smoothie shake. Uh, and it looks uh, something like this before. This is after. This is probably disgusting enough to make you want to log off right now. But uh, I was finished, but there was still some of this green concoction in the bottom of the container. But I went to the sink to rinse it out. So I removed the lid. I held it under the container. I uh, held the container under our, our high arch faucet. And I started to run water into it. And pretty quickly, because physics, the container got heavier and the condensation that had built up on the outside made it suddenly slip out of my hand. Now, the good news is the container dropped straight down into the sink. The bad news is, again, physics. When one drops a cylindrical container with liquid in it straight down into the bottom of a sink, when the container strikes a solid surface, the law of physics causes a small nuclear explosion, which means that the slimy green liquid blew up into my face and my hair. And in shock and surprise, I reached over, turned the water off, and then I looked up to see this slimy green water that had missed my face now dripping from the ceiling. Now, some of you know, like a bazillion years ago, I was in the Navy. Nearly all of you have heard the term cuss like a sailor, right? Well, while in the Navy, I had my life-changing encounter with Jesus, which I'll explain later. But the bottom line is I got serious about my faith and it changed my life. And one of the things that uh, significantly changed was my cuss like a sailor language, you know, for the most part. However, in that protein shake moment, the sailor of Christmas past rose from within. And what proceeded from my lips was a litany of words so well strung together with the variation of one word in particular repeated, it would make an old school sailor proud. Now, I failed to mention that my wife was also home. She was in the bathroom, get, bathroom getting ready for work, and fortunately in that moment, she had the hairdryer on, so the sound was not reaching her ears, except for the last syllable, which came out right as she had turned off the hairdryer. Thinking I was talking to her, she said, what was that? And I said, nothing, dear. 
as I began this tedious cleanup process. So here's the truth about me as a man and a dad and even as a pastor. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. I'm not proud of it or defending it, but it's true. And you know, some of you, you can relate. In fact, how about a moment of real authenticity? If this describes you, you love Jesus, but you cuss a little, how about a little hand up emoji in the comments? And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be cussing specifically. Rather like me, you recognize that there are ways, maybe many ways, in which you are just far from being 100% neat and tidy. There's things that you say and do or how you react to certain situations or things or people, and you know, in comparison to the holiness and goodness of God, assuming he's there, you're flawed and imperfect and maybe even a bit destructive in your life at times. And yet for most of you, you believe and you follow. You might even say, I love Jesus, but I, I blank a little. You believe, and at the same time, you're a bit of a mess in certain areas. And here's why I'm talking about this today and why it's relevant to you and everyone you know who might be hungry to know more about God and grow or to find belonging but have reservations about church. And that's this. Four years ago today, a group of 10 adults sat on my back deck one evening. We decided, with God's help, we're going to plan a church. And one of the core driving factors is that we wanted to create a Jesus-focused community where no one has to fake it. A community where no one ever has to pretend that they're better than they are. They've got it all figured out and together because that's exhausting, right? I mean, some of you, you're not even a Christian and you live with this. You battle insecurities and fear that if people were to know the real you, they wouldn't like what they see. And so you hide parts of the real you that you're afraid for anyone else to see or know about. And we felt passionate about starting a community where someone's past or present isn't relevant to them being loved and valued, to create a community where anyone could feel real belonging, whether they're just exploring Jesus or they've been a follower for decades, to create a community where you can belong before you believe, where you could, we would come alongside one another, people just like you who are just trying to figure it out, especially when it comes to intersecting life and faith and how that impacts daily life. One of my favorite moments in the life of Jesus that drives this thinking is so significant, it's actually recorded in three of the four Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that right after healing a paralyzed man in front of hundreds of witnesses, Jesus walked, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Levi was a traitor to his people. He worked for the occupying force of Rome. His people hated him. The closest comparison might be how the French people felt about their fellow Frenchmen that worked for and collaborated with the Nazis during the German occupation of France in World War II. So right after Jesus does this incredible miracle, he approaches this guy, Levi, and what happens next shocked everyone there. But as shocked as the disciples and the crowd were, I can promise you no one was more shocked than Levi when Jesus looks at this hated traitor who he should publicly shame, a man so hated that his kind wasn't even good enough to be simply labeled sinner. Tax collectors had their own hated category. Jesus looks this man in the eye, and of all the things he should says, say, he says two words, follow and you would have heard a gasp of disbelief in the crowd. And what likely followed was a moment of awkward silence as everyone, including Levi, waited to see what happens next. I imagine Levi froze for a long, awkward moment, staring Jesus in the eye, trying to determine if this rabbi was serious, knowing that whatever he decided, his life would never be the same. And some of you have had a moment like that, a moment of decision. Am I going to continue on my way or will I choose to follow Jesus? Some of you are wrestling with that decision right now. 
My moment was at 2 a.m. on March 20th when I was 19. It was a defining moment where up to that time, there were a lot of things that I believed about God and Jesus. I'd even been baptized as a child, but what I said I believed and how I actually lived was utterly incongruent, and it was more than just cussing a lot. God was essentially nothing more than a genie in a bottle for me. I'd rub the lamp anytime I was in a tough spot or needed something. And Jesus was something akin to fire insurance to make sure that I went to heaven and not hell when I died, hopefully. While at the same time, I denied myself no thing or no one my heart desired, whatever I thought would make me happy. But during that March night, I had a moment I can't fully explain. It will sound cliche, but it was a moment in which my life essentially flashed before my eyes. And in that moment, I sensed God offering me two options. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was a word that suddenly was front and center in my mind. Choose. And right then was my Levi moment where I knew I could no longer simply be religious or live out this duplicitous life and pretend. I had to give up saying someday I'll grow up and get my life together. When I get older, I'll get serious about God. Then I'll be good. Because the longer I played that game, the more I simply heaped up regret and self-loathing. And God, knowing me better than anyone, and I knew how uh, unworthy I was, the invitation was clear. Follow myself or follow Jesus. And in the end, I did what Levi did. Levi got up, left everything, followed him. And we can be confident the disciples felt so many emotions in that moment. Shock, confusion, embarrassment. Jesus, you can't do this. People will think we like tax collectors. There's no way this ends well for us. And indeed, things did get worse. Because then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. He invited a large crowd of many tax collectors and sinners, and they were eating with Jesus and his disciples. This was unbelievable. Everyone, including the disciples, were totally confused. But nothing Jesus did was accident. Everything Jesus did was meant to instruct and demonstrate. And for those of you that grew up in church, you know who else shows up at this party? The Klingons of the first century, the Sith, the Orcs, the bad guys, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. These were the ones who had the religious power, who supposedly represented God and determined who was in and who was out. They had incredible influence, and their main message to everyone, for the most part, was God may love you, but he does not like you. In fact, some of you, you grew up in a church or a faith system, and that was the underlying message you heard. Or somehow it's just one you've come to embrace. And I want you especially to pay attention to this story because it will show you nothing could be further from the truth. And as bad a rap as we give the religious leaders of Jesus' day, no doubt they earned it. While it's easy to judge their shock and confusion and what they ask next, the truth is they vocalize the exact question the disciples themselves were wondering in that moment. And as much as we don't like these narcissistic, self-righteous religious leaders, they ask the question we should ask. Jesus is there. He's instructed his closest followers to join him so that they're all eating and drinking at this tax collector and sinner party surrounded by social and religious misfits. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice they don't ask Jesus directly. They ask the disciples, Partly because they wouldn't cross the threshold of the home because it would make them ceremonially unclean. But the other reason is Jesus often made them wet themselves a little. They were intimidated by him. So they sent someone in to get a disciple or two to come near the door or step outside. And Luke tells us the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And the disciples 
they had no answer because they were just as confused and unsettled as the religious leaders. Because in that culture, like ours, but especially then, it's a big deal to dine at someone's table. It's an indicator of some level of relationship or welcoming or acceptance. And as much as we like to hate on the religious leaders of Jesus's day, they ask a very good question. But it's, and it's important to realize with the layout of the homes in that day, understanding the culture of that day, these bold, brash religious leaders, they didn't just lean in and whisper their question. No, they were there to make a point. They asked this question loud enough that everyone gathered could hear them. And when this question was asked, it's safe to assume that everyone grew quiet. Because again, this was the question on everyone's mind. As confused as the disciples and religious leaders were about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, the tax collectors and sinners were just as confused. So Jesus' answer is everything then and everything today. Because his answer was meant to instruct and demonstrate and to define the movement and community that he came to start. And it's both enlightening and offensive. And sadly, in my experience, his answer has been missed or forgotten by far too many Christians and churches. His answer is foundational to why we are and why, why we are who we are and why we exist as a church. On hearing this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners without leaving his place at the table, surrounded by his hosts and all the guests and loud enough for everyone to hear? Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in his statement, Jesus says something so enlightening and offensive because the insinuation to all those with him is clear. You're sick and you're sinners, every single one of you. And as offensive as this was, they weren't all that offended because like most of us, they knew. They intuitively knew when it came to God, they were flawed and broken. They'd all grown up in Jewish culture so that they knew if the God of Israel exists, when it comes to his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness, we are weighed and measured and found wanting. We are sick without a cure. Jesus, you're exactly right. And Matthew, because he wrote his account primarily with a Jewish audience in mind, he documents one other thing Jesus said. And Jesus said what he says is something every good Jew would know. He's quoting an Old Testament document written by what's referred to as a minor prophet named Hosea. And essentially, Jesus tells these highly educated leaders, top of the religious food chain, they need to go back to Judaism 101, the text they've been studying from childhood. And I believe Jesus speaks to all of us, people who do what I do in 2020, though to those who have forgotten, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And this is so powerful, I don't have time to fully unpack all the layers of what Jesus communicates in just these few words. But the ultimate point Jesus is making is this. God isn't impressed by how much you sacrifice for him. He's impressed with how you sacrifice for others, especially towards those who are separated from God, lost to God, those who, for whatever reason, are far from God. And Jesus is saying, I've come to heal people from the destructiveness of the sin in their life by turning them from it. I've come to heal the relationship between God and the lost ones, the spiritually sick, the sinners. I've come so that they might have life that's truly life in this life and the next. Because when we die, if that's not all that there is. Jesus is God in the body and he's showing in the most dramatic fashion what it means to live out a characteristic that God desires most, which is a reflection of him, which is mercy, 
which just simply means to love in spite of, compassion, sympathy, pity, forgiveness, and kindness. This suppresses our Heavenly Father because it's at the heartbeat of our Heavenly Father. Jesus' point is when it comes to my movement, my ecclesia and community, mercy and love are to define it. And for anyone who would follow me, this is to define the culture and dynamic of my followers and my church. Because this will accomplish what I came to accomplish, which is this, to draw men and women to their Heavenly Father. This is what will lead the spiritually sick to become well, what will turn someone from missing the mark and hurting themselves and others. Because all of us, we're, we experience this. You don't have to be a Christian. We miss the mark with our own, our own standards because you're against hurting you and hurting other people, and yet there are times when you hurt you and other people. So we're all victim of this reality, and Jesus introduces God as the Heavenly Father who loves us, and no good father stands by passively watching his children hurt themselves or hurt others continually, right? That's why Jesus says he's come, because of his love for us, to call us to repentance, which simply means to change our mind, to change our approach to life, because God loves us. You know, one of the most significant parts of the story isn't recorded in the story. We don't know exactly when it transpires, but when Jesus first met the man man at the center of the story, his name was Levi, tag name, tax collector. But as it was a common custom of Jesus' day, there would be a name change sometimes to mark the occasion of a dramatic life change that would be given or taken. And most of you know, Jesus gave Simon a new name, Peter, which meant rock. He gave James and John a new name, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, which not going to lie, that's a much better name. And it's likely that Jesus gave Levi his new name, where this Levi took it on for himself. But he went from Levi the tax collector to Matthew, which means Yahweh's gift. Because after deciding to follow Jesus and after encountering a resurrected Jesus, after Jesus had been killed and buried and then rose again, Levi's life was changed forever. And so was his name. You know, I got into full-time ministry as a result of my own Levi encounter with Jesus as a 19-year-old kid in the Navy. I finished my enlistment. I never looked back. I was determined to give the rest of my life to help as many people as possible, have a similar opportunity to encounter and follow Jesus. Obviously not that everyone would enter full-time ministry, but that they would experience a Jesus-informed sense of direction and purpose that connected to every aspect of their life. And at first, I was so excited about this. Like many 19-year-olds, I was convinced, I'm going to change the world. I couldn't begin to work it with mature and seasoned Christians that would obviously share my same passion. But sadly, what I quickly discovered is far too often, church was designed for church people. I've shared examples in the past. One was the first year of our marriage. My wife and I visited a church, and we dressed for church here in the Midwest like we did for church in California, which was pretty casual. And we walked into a packed lobby, and no one acknowledged us. Still, we decided to go back the following Sunday, but this time I wore a tie and a jacket, and Sean wore a a dress. And from the moment we stopped in, you would have thought we were rock stars. They welcomed us as first-time guests, as if we weren't glaringly obvious the week before. Or there was a time many years later, I was on staff at a different church that I felt truly had a heart for the unchurched. When I observed a young couple walk in one weekend, they looked fairly goth, lots of ink and piercings and black hair and black clothing. And I stood and watched as no one in our packed lobby approached them. I remember getting angry, reflecting back and remembering my experience years earlier. I went up to them, introduced myself, and crazy enough, just a few months later, they became some of our most vested volunteers at the church. 
or several years ago, I typed a letter to a small group leader in the church I was at. And in the same letter, I was reflecting on a ministry effort that hadn't worked out. And I made the comment that it really sucked. It didn't work out. And I printed it, but then I forgot and accidentally left it on a shared printer. And later on, it was seen by a young intern whose dad was an elder. He actually took the letter from the printer, showed the letter to his dad, and then this elder actually drafted a letter to the entire board saying he couldn't understand how any Christian, let alone a pastor, could use such language. And I thought, bro, come over when my protein shake explodes and hit the ceiling. You'll want to shove an entire case of soap in my mouth and insist that I be rebaptized. My point is this. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. I battle temptations. I'm average smart. I'm not super creative or dynamic. I have ADHD and the attention span of a gnat. I loathe how selfish I can be, and I sometimes find it very hard to love people, which is why I had to tattoo a reminder on my arm. I'm an average at best communicator, and far too often I feel utterly inadequate to the task as a pastor, as a husband, as a father. I didn't start new life because I was somehow better than anyone else. To the contrary, in a way, I was trying to start a church in a way for people like me. People who are messy and flawed, who can feel like spiritual outsiders. People who are willing to acknowledge that they're spiritually sick and that they're sinners, just like me. People who are genuinely open about the reality of a God that wants to engage with us. Who are motivated enough to spend a lifetime seeking Him and waking up each day wanting to follow Jesus a little more closely than the day before. I was motivated to start this church for people who are exhausted with pretending that they're better than they are who long for a community where you can be authentic and real and messy together while growing together. What drives me is the longing to be a church that Jesus would send people to because he knows what we know. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And that we're just as sick as anyone else. And he isn't impressed by how much we sacrifice to him, but how much we sacrifice for others. That we, we would be a church where Jesus could send people like me and like you who could come with their imperfections and struggles and doubts and insecurities and even their sin. Sin they think is secret and sin that's obvious to the world like Levi's was. That when they're willing to admit that life and faith is complicated enough that they want help, that they could come and be surrounded by people just like them. That we will love them, who will show them kindness and mercy and love because we have been shown kindness and mercy and love. Like many of you, the reason I was able to have my defining moment is because there were people in my life who unabashedly, boldly, yet patiently, in love, shared with me the message about a resurrected Jesus and what God offers through him, and their efforts finally paid off. This was followed by visiting a church community that should have shamed me and judged me if only they knew the life that I'd been living in spite of believing all the right things. A church that never should have let me pass the front door, except they hadn't forgotten who Jesus had come for. So without hesitation, they made me feel I was one of them. I belonged. And like animals that are imprinted on the first creature they experience after they're born, I was imprinted by this Jesus community so much, it was exactly what I pictured giving my life to recreate. So today's a reminder for those of you that have been with New Life for a longer time, for those of you that are new to our community, it's an invitation to join with us to create a church that the unchurched would love to attend. For those of you that have been keeping God and maybe church at an arm's distance, my hope is that you might be encouraged and excited that you're not alone, that there's actually an authentic group of people that love Jesus, but they may cuss a little. People who believe that there's abundant evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. 
And our hope is that you would decide to take your next step in following Jesus. If you're not sure what that is, there's a link for a prayer card in the comments. Just click it. It'll just take you a second to fill out, and then you'll get a personal call from me, and we'll go from there. And also, if you're new to New Life, anything you've heard today sounds inviting, like this is the kind of community you would like to be part of, your next step is to click the link to join our online family group. And again, I'll touch base with you in the next couple of days. But for now, let me pray for us. God, I just thank you for your love and your patience. And I pray, God, that you truly would help us to be a people and a community that would live like you and remembering that you have not called the sick, but the, called the well, but the sick to change, to repentance, because you want to give us hope and a new life. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being with us and joining us today. I would encourage you to join us next week because next week we're going to be dealing with a question that if you implement this question in your life, it could answer 90% of the questions that you have in your life and giving you the direction that you just so long for. And if that sounds good, don't miss next week. Moms, just so you know, we're going to be posting uh, the, the video that we shared this morning. So if you want to share that with family and friends. So please be sure to invite some friends and join us next week. We'll see you then.